Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. I'm so glad to have John Lloyd here with me in uh, London. Welcome to my podcast, John. Thank you, Vesna. We're in Covent Garden. We are in your studio, QI. As way of intro, John is a legendary English television producer and writer, best known for his work on comedy television programs such as Not the Nine O'Clock News, Spitting Image, The Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy, Black Adder and QI. So, John, to just kick off in terms of impact, which this part very much is about, to have a true impact, you need this very strong emotional connection with people. Would you say that comedy is a really great way to influence? Comedy is a brilliant tool for almost anything. I worked for nearly 15 years as a commercial director in advertising. And if you can get a comedy ad right, it will sell you shed loads of product. I mean, it's the most effective way of advertising, really. It's also a wonderful tool for, if you like, political satire, because you're able to express different points of view, sometimes quite difficult things, in a way which is unthreatening. And if you've got people laughing, you've got them listening. It's also uh, interesting comedy because comedy that's not true doesn't really work. If you don't perceive it as true, it's not very funny. It's also, I do a lot of after-dinner speaking. I don't know why, but I go all over the place talking to uh, businesses, corporate things, do lots of awards, that kind of stuff. And so I'm basically, a lot of my evenings are 500 guys in black ties. In business, you don't see enough comedy, I don't think. Very often, the, you know, the chairman or the chief financial officer will get up and uh, review the year and so on. And few people use jokes. It's good for me because I get up and I do use jokes. And uh, But again, it's getting people to listen. It's getting them on your side. Comedy is a great connector. It's a unifier. If two people are laughing, they're on the same side, not against each other. So it definitely, yeah as a tool in business, as a tool for persuasion, as a tool for uh, relaxing people, as a teacher. You know, the teachers who use comedy are the most popular teachers in the school. And it's an accident for me, this, because I, I got into comedy because I started out trying to train as a lawyer and thought I would never be any good at it. And I did comedy as a hobby. And for a long time, many of my friends now are senior judges and run banks and do various doctors. They do very serious, important things, and I'm still doing jokes. But over the decades, I've come to think that apart from being a doctor, making people laugh for a living is one of the most positive and healing things you can do, as well as being good fun. You've uh, worked with uh, and uh, been the producer for comedians like Rowan Atkinson and many others. Who do you think tomorrow the world of uh, comedy belongs to and why? It's very nearly 50-50 men and women in comedy now. And also you're beginning to see the rise of um, people of ethnic, different ethnic minority backgrounds come to the fore. You've got some great comedians like Nish Kumar is very hot at the moment. There's a guy called Ramesh Ranganathan. Nish is a, 
of a Hindu Indian background. Um, Ramesh is uh, Sri Lankan. And what's interesting about these people is they're completely British. They sound British. You'd never know they were. If you didn't see them, you wouldn't know they were uh, from a, an ethnic minority background. So this is where the future's going at the moment. Comedy is is not part of the patriarchy in the, in the same that it was. I just uh, passed into the office this morning and Catherine Ryan, who's an extremely good young satirical Canadian comedian has got her own show in in a West End theatre here and we've had her on QI a couple of times but she was absolutely unknown five years ago and now she's a major megastar. My general prediction for the future is more women and more people from diverse backgrounds internationally which I think can only be good. It's uh, Comedy is undoubtedly a force for good You've spent you know, most of your life actually inventing new ideas in one way or the other that no one you know, has done before. And, and today, exactly these types of people are heroes and, and sometimes called entrepreneurs, creators, creativity, engines and so on that everybody's after. Uh, how was it for you? Well, I'm obviously I'm known for doing comedy, but that isn't really what drives me. I do like making people laugh, and, and I like to laugh myself, but comedy is simply my toolbox, as it were. What drives me is ideas. I'm driven by what's interesting and new things particularly, and then to get that across to people. So that's really what I do for a living is I communicate interesting original ideas in a way which is easy to understand and surprises people like like just one simple example of that well everything in my life is it, when i i sometimes think there's i've only had one idea which is you take a subject that looks dull and you make it funny and interesting so not the nine o'clock news was for young actors doing contemporary culture you think what would be funny about that and that's really was it was Britain in the 80s, everything, politics, culture, television, and so on. It sounds like a bit corporate as an idea, but it was a very, very funny show and um, cutting edge. Spitting images, politics, taking properly serious politics, discussions in the British cabinet and, you know, the Labour Party and the big issues of the day, the miners' strike and all that, these serious, you know, issues that on the whole make people angry or bored rather than make them laugh. And that was a very, the most successful show in many ways I've ever done. Used to get 15 million viewers every Sunday night. Blackadder is history, you know, it's school history taken and made interesting and funny. And QI is the universe made interesting and funny. So it's really the same thing in different guises. You know, one is a sitcom and two of them are sketch shows and others a panel game. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, obviously, is science fiction. But they all do exactly the same thing, in fact. So entrepreneurship, yeah, that's what interests me. Is to say, managing a band now, uh, Harry, my son, is an absolute... He's got a band called Waiting for Smith. I've worked with musicians all my life for more than 45 years. He's one of the best people I've ever worked with. He's magic. He can write tunes. You don't know where they come from. He's got maybe 50 great songs. And he's completely self-taught, apart from a few guitar lessons in a couple of years ago. 
And I'm astounded. This is what I say, what excites me, what drives me. Where does this wonderful stuff come from? So I want to get him well known because the, the world deserves to hear this music because it'll make them happy and, and delight them. Is there any way you can use that uh, within QI? No, not really. But it's like as what I do in the evenings, really. <laughs> you have a 24-hour schedule, I hear. <laughs> uh, entrepreneurship. But I mean, you know, it, it is interesting. I suppose I am in a small way an entrepreneur. Certainly, I can say that over my life, I've generated enormous revenue streams. I mean, really multi, multi-millions. You know, I, I have a nice house, but I've never, and I'm fortunate that I've never really hit pay dirt. I've never got seriously rich. The only time I made a lot of money was when I was a commercial structor, which was when I was least entrepreneurial and, and actually least happy, really. But as I say, what drives me is ideas, making them happen and sharing them with people. And that is great fun. If you have fun and if your life is interesting and if you believe in what you do, you don't need very much money. You know, I have enough money to do what I like to do. You know, yachts and all that stuff. Yeah. And I don't think that has ever made anyone happy for more than five minutes. True. What would you say are your like transformational points in your life that have, you know, influenced you the most? Um, sometimes when I'm giving talks not to 500 businessmen, in a, a very expensive hotel, but to schools or universities, I sometimes talk, I take the line, disaster is a gift. So most of the things that have happened to me that have turned out to be transformative and useful and positive have all started out awful. You know, I've been sacked from a job unfairly or my girlfriend gave me the boot or, you know, something's gone wrong. I'm actually quite a lazy person. I think of myself, even though I work very hard, I think of myself as being rather lazy and rather indecisive. So I think if bad things haven't happened, I would still be producing the same radio show that I was producing in 1976 in a comfortable office with the same secretary, you know, in the same pub every lunchtime. <laughs> But because so many difficult things have happened... I mean, for example, Douglas Adams, who wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, was my best friend. We shared a house together. We had the next office in the BBC, and he sacked me, you know, just as he started to get famous. And I really was very, I was very cross. and I, had, I was very hurt. And as a result, I quit my job and went to work for television. Why did that happen? He just wanted, he didn't, I helped him out writing it. And because he got stuck and he was my best friend, of course I would help. And then he said, well, if, if it works, it's not going to work. But if it works, you can do the second series with me together. And of course it did work. And he went on to become amazingly famous and he didn't want to share it. That was all. And, and I think at the time I was hurt, but actually if he'd stuck to his word, he would have been happier and just as rich, I think. Um, he felt his excuse was that he didn't think it was as good when we'd done it together, that the loneliness and the fear that he experienced writing on his own made, gave it an edge and made it better. Mm -hmm. I didn't particularly agree with that, but the upshot was that poor Douglas died at 49, nearly 20 years ago, and he's basically known for one thing. And because he sacked me, I've got this list of things that I've, all these new things that I've done because of that. That's where it began. 
And that, that's happened lots of times. I've been in that position where people feel that, thanks for the help, I don't need you anymore. I can do it on my own. That's a big pattern in my life. And it took me a long time, and indeed therapy, to work, work out what, what was going on there. Um, But what about what about in these tough situations? What did you typically do? I mean, where did you find at the end strength and, and light? And were you good at asking for support yourself? No, no, I'm um, I very much believe in you're on your own and you've got to cope, pick yourself up. But the disaster is a gift thing that came. Uh, I lived with disasters just thinking they were disasters for a long time until I was in my 40s. I just thought it was very unfair. And I was driven by unfairness and resentment. Right, okay, I'm going to show them. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie down under this. So that's one thing that's transformative experiences. The other is, I mean, partly, again, because my girlfriend gave me the sack and I was very unhappy. And I met my wife, who was a friend, and we started seeing each other. And then she said, okay, well, I'm not going to share you with anybody. Um, I'm leaving you. So I thought, oh, fine, okay, she's just a friend. And then one day I suddenly thought, we'd only been split up for like three or four days. And I thought, I'm making the worst mistake of my life if I, I have to marry this woman. If I don't spend my life with Sarah, it would be the worst mistake. I, I spent a week looking for her, running around London. Where's she gone? Where's she gone? went found her proposed on the spot and i had this fantastic feeling of complete utter blissful happiness i was so happy i've never been that happy before or since i just was full like i was full of light and and joy and i just said i want to give you everything i have everything that i have is yours you know absolutely everything forever So that was marvelous. And then we got married and the, our wedding was amongst our friends famous for being annoyingly wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. It was full of laughter and joy and stupid jokes and great fun. And uh, that was another thing. And I, then I had to, a long time, as you do when you're married, things were much more difficult than they seemed. And there was about 10 years of shouting. And I remember thinking, all I had to do was think of my wedding thinking, I know I meant that. I know I meant that. So that was transformed. And then the kids. Then the, that's the next lot of things is having children. I often say my children taught me everything that I know. No, nothing compares to no, no school, no university teaches you as much as kids, if you're listening and if you're, if you're willing to learn. All children under five are philosophers, geniuses, highly creative people. I'm ashamed to say now, it was only when our third one came along that that suddenly occurs to you. If you're going to have children at all, have three. That's my recommendation because the first one is practice. So you can you ruin that person's character. The second one, you're just getting a a hold on things. So they tend to be slightly insecure. Are they going to, are these people going to flip? Are they going to leave home? All that. And by the time you've got the third one, all your preconceptions, your prejudices, your stupid ideas that you learn from when you were a child, have all gone, and you're just easy, fine. A child is a miracle, you know, why not just be nice to them? And that's what we did with our youngest is, so my parenting tip is be nice, be there, and leave them alone. That's all you have to do. You don't have to mold a child or tell it what to do. They're all fine, thanks very much. They just need to be left alone to find out who they are. Yeah, that is so true, <laughs> so well said. How can we change or inspire education to be different? 
the curse of education for a long time has been that it's one size fits all with indifferent teaching. You know, people are different, as we know. People respond to different things. They, uh, they're all different kinds. And yet we, it's like, like so much modern life in business and in media and, and in education is metrics as what's wanted. If it can't be measured, then it's no good. But you can't measure how nice a person is. You can't measure that a person comes out of school as a rounded, forthright, courageous, decent individual. And one of the counterintuitive things about school is that, generally speaking, <laughs> people who do well at school, very well, often that's the best they'll do in life. It's often the people who don't do well at school because they don't fit the box who do very well. I mean, you mentioned entrepreneurs. Nearly all entrepreneurs are a disaster at school. They're often dyslexic. They're often rebellious. They often leave school very young. You name them. Think of all the novelists and all the guitarists, all the highly creative people. Again, all the specialists. Again, it's like kids nowadays are expected to get A's in 10 different subjects. That's impossible. That never happens in life. Nobody's a world expert in 10 different kinds of science or... You know, nobody can do 10 things really, really well, but we expect that of our children. You don't expect it of teachers. You don't expect the biology teacher to be able to do a geography lesson or a history lesson. Well, they wouldn't know where to start. But you expect the person they're teaching biology to also be good at physics and English and so on. It's actually completely mad, and it's a bit like the prison system, which is another thing. Is like the prison system is crazy. It doesn't work. It doesn't stop crime. It doesn't uh, uh, stop criminals committing crime. It makes them worse, and it's extremely expensive. So what is the point of it? But nobody thinks that. You're not allowed to say that because prisoners need to be punished and children need to be taught, and they must sit still. They must sit still, and they must learn these things. Well, why must they? What's the point of learning pieces of information that you'll forget three weeks after the exam. What you need to teach is how to learn, how to face, because what, pro what humans do extremely well is naturally they solve problems that they've never seen before. And school does not teach you to do that. It teaches you to solve the problem once and then remember what the problem solution is. And then when the exam comes up to repeat what you've been told, which is why very often you know, the proportion of people who do well at school and do well afterwards, they don't, they don't necessarily sync up. And I also think we don't, particularly in Britain, so we've got uh, two things the British do very well economically, the city, so we're very good at finance. So for that, we need to make that work. We need, because all algorithms now, it's not really people doing, we need more mathematicians. And we don't teach maths and physics well except of people who already don't need to be taught maths, because maths is like a knack. You know, if you know how to do maths, it seems, seems easy. People like me have to be literally beaten to learn maths. I don't understand it at school. I still don't. So we need mathematicians. But the other thing the UK is very good at is copyrights. So that's music, publishing, television, radio, all that kind of stuff. Um, and all the ancillary things, you know, design, advertising, these things we're very, very good at. We're a very creative nation. Above our per head, we're unusually good at um, that kind of stuff. And so 
that's what we should be teaching at school. And yet, if you're in a band at school, that's considered a hobby. If you're always writing poetry and looking out the window, then you're not paying attention to the lessons. So we're training people really as if Britain still had an empire. We're training people to be uh, corporate uh, lawyers and civil servants and administrators. So we're trying to teach a very narrow set of skills. Essentially, can you process very large numbers of dull statistics and papers about things accurately to be able to advise the minister how to behave? That's what we do well. And instead of teaching creativity, really, that's our, our lack, I think. Going back to the business world as in general, what would you say are, you know, long term solutions for a business that, that you believe in? We're only 12 of us. Um, there are some outliers who work part time and some, but there's only 12 permanent staff. It's a lot easier with 12 people to have a working philosophy to you know to solve problems before they become acute to treat people well and because we're a solvent company and flexible um, all the values of small flexible creative effective you know popular all that kind of stuff that you say it would be easy to anyone could run that company It's much more difficult when you've got 20,000 people in a company because how does the person, let's say the CEO is a very inspiring individual, how does he or she keep tabs on what people are doing on the ground floor? You know, there's only so many visits to factories and things a person, one person can do. I don't know how that works. But in this company... For a start, people find us. We don't really, we've only ever gone out to hire one person. People come and ask all the time if they can have a job. And we have a system of giving them a sort of internship or a test or a trial run, which starts online. And if that pass that, then they'll get a sort of little a paid job online. And then if that works, then, you know, they'll come to the office for a, a set period. And if that works, then they're here forever. But what we've, if you've had a look downstairs, you'll see people say, wow, this is amazing. This looks like somebody's house. It's got leather sofas and Turkish carpets on the floor and it's lined with books and so on. It looks like, you know, it looks like a holiday camp or something. And I said, yeah, that's right. And that's deliberate because why shouldn't people like to go to their office? And that's one of the reasons. And people are allowed to lie on the sofa. When you read a book at home, don't you often lie on the sofa? We all have to read books every day. You know, they're just books about facts. So you quite often come in here and find two people lying on the sofa. Is it looks like they're slacking? No, they're not. People work. And the, the effect of having a company that does interesting things, which is full of people who are given very early responsibility, the whole idea is that If you're good enough to work for the company, we don't have runners here. Everybody makes the tea. And it's also what we call a flat hierarchy. I'm sure you're familiar with that phrase. It's not a pyramid. It's not nobody works for me. We all work for the idea. I mean, I do have final cut. Ultimately, I get final say on, I suppose, everything. But people are essentially left alone. We've learned, like with children, find good people, leave them alone, to learn on their own. That's how children learn to speak languages. They just listen. And that works extremely well corporately. 
you'll get much more out of people if you don't tell them this is what, why are you doing that? You're not allowed to do that. You know, you are, you've been hired as a this and you must stick to that. You must sit in your box. Everybody comes to us as some sort of geeky, nerdy research nut, you know, fact nut. And then, but now in the company you have, they had none of these skills before. People who are writers, people who are performers, people who are film editors, sound editors, podcasters, directors, producers, book editors, they uh, uh, graphic designers. It is absolutely extraordinary what these people have become. They've discovered skills they literally didn't know they had. So Alex designs a lot of our visual look, book covers, um, in, uh, and he also directs and so on. And all, people have m- multiple skills, and it's from being not told what to do. And it's very much the way the old BBC used to work. When I was hired by the BBC, somebody said, do you want to be a producer? And I said, no, no, I want to be a writer and a performer. Well, I think you should be a producer. Why? Well, we just think you'd be good at it. And I said, well, I don't think I would. I think I'd be a writer. So, well, okay, well, you can write as well, okay? How about, how about you, you start producing and then you can write as well? So I said, well, well I, I don't really know what producers do. They all seem very old and they seem to get in the way. What, what do you want me to do? I said, well, you've got to make stuff you'd like to listen to. This is in radio. So is that all? Yeah. Well, if you don't like it, why would anybody else? So that was the way I was trained. And that was literally, that was the training. And I made 100 programs before they sent me on a technical training course. But by that time, it had got into the bloodstream. And that's what I've always done, is I only do things I like. Because if I don't like them, how can you expect anyone else to? And that's the way everyone in the company's trained. They're all told, we want to know what you think. We've asked you because we want to know what you think. Most companies, do you know the expression HIPPO? It's an acronym. Uh, most businesses in most meetings, in most businesses, most people are waiting for a hippo to come along. And a hippo stands for higher paid person's opinion. So you're waiting to hear what the boss thinks before you express your own opinion. So you've got this thing, the pyramid's the wrong way up. The way a pyramid works is that the people at the bottom bear all the weight and the responsibility. And the higher up you go, essentially, the lighter the burden of responsibility is. So the people at the top in the old days basically went to lunch and told their secretary what to do and then, and the people at the bottom are carrying all the weight. And now what's happened is everyone is the other way around, is that people at the bottom aren't given any responsibilities. They're told what to do because there's a, there are so many rules, aren't there? There's health and safety and there's, you know, diversity and people got to fill in forms all the time. That happens in every company now. And so people aren't given any responsibility at the bottom. So the higher up you go, the weight of responsibility is terrible. And the whole company is based on how one person decides everything. And it's a waste. What's the point of having a meeting of 20 people if you don't care what the juniors think? They may have better ideas than you. So that's the way that everyone's trained. And people, it's quite difficult, especially if people come. It's okay with the teenagers. But if they come in their 30s, you have to teach them to be disobedient. You must stand up to me. Don't disagree. It's okay. And you are not going to be fired if you disagree. You're more likely to be fired for agreeing with me when you don't agree. Mm. 
kind of unlearn things. It's yes. difficult. But I think that from what I've seen from a lot of companies lately that are successful, you know, regardless of size, what you're describing as, you know, your work atmosphere and, and, and some of the values you are uh, following here is very much part of that success formula. So that to understand as much as possible what's driving the people that you have on board and possibly to understand that before you hire them, of course. I mean, what is their blueprint? Uh, what is driving them? What is the contribution they want to make? What kind of experience are they looking for? And then, as you say, you will you will also understand that they actually have maybe several talents and interests that you could actually use in the company and make them more happy. I spent the 80s basically trying to change the world through direct satirical television action and made no difference at all. And I decided in the 90s, the only thing that you can possibly hope to change is yourself. And if you change yourself, the people around you stand a chance of changing and you have a nicer life. So I've given up trying to change the world in general, but I definitely know that you can change the world around you by being a nicer person, by being more thoughtful, kinder, more interested, less aggressive, all those things. And I think all the programs I've done are, were actually microcultures because you set a... It comes from the top, as you know, if the director or the producer are, are good people, then it tends to affect how other people are. So one of the principles of the company is, look, everybody has faults, especially me, and everybody gets irritated by other people because they're not the same as them, or sometimes because they recognize in somebody else their own faults, you know. And the idea is everybody's in this company because we love you and we think you're absolutely brilliant and you have so many good points and you have one or two very annoying things, uh, which you can't help because that's the way we're all annoying one way or another. And everybody's encouraged to put up with the annoying bit because the other bits are so good. And the weird thing is that over the years, people stop being annoying. People who previously were very angry or very arrogant or very needy or very we don't have any lazy people but um we might have for example somebody very anxious or what else can i say very uh, tendency to be very depressed that kind of thing everyone is everyone's got an edge to their personality which is you know their dark side but because people are encouraged and supported and and have a nice place to work, they lose these negative characteristics. It's the most extraordinary thing. And so people are generally very cheerful, very willing, very positive, very, very willing to do things they haven't been asked to do, very willing to work longer hours than uh, they thought they were going to, willing to try new things, willing to listen to other people's point of view, willing to stand up to people senior to them and to disagree when they feel passionately about it. There's So there's lots of passion and a much overused word in business but actually very little anger very little uh, loneliness and yet people are working on their own for themselves most of the day they're in the same room but they're people aren't lonely and there's a very uh, very supportive it's not competitive people aren't competing to be better than the person at the next desk they're they're helping each other if they get stuck. And it's the way I honestly think every company in the world should be like this. And then what you could achieve, imagine if this was a company, instead of just doing amusing television programs, if we were actually 
running a science lab or a hospital or a police station or a prison. We could, what we could do is unbelievable if it, it was based on these principles. When you feel that you're in a safe space, you can be yourself. And that's where the magic happens, where I will maybe, you know, tell you about an idea that maybe you will think is too crazy, but I dare to do it, right? And all of this, the magic happens when you are supported and when when you are really also feeling that you have a joint kind of mission. I entered your offices before you came and talked to some people here, and they were all totally convinced about the impact that you're looking to have with your QI organization. So I think it's proof that they know why they come to their job and they feel it's meaningful. And I'm sure that also bigger companies know how to do that uh, as long as they have, you know, a leader who really believes in people and uh, doesn't have any other. Of course, they have other agendas, but they, number one, believe in people because they are the ones that they're going to bring yeah. results. But if you would assume you have all doors open and uh, all kinds of resources available to you, what would you then innovate or change, whether it is in within your world or outside? In education, if you don't interest the children, they won't listen and they won't learn. If you make a movie that's not interesting, people won't come and it will not make any money. If you have a job which people don't find interesting, then they won't do it very well. They'll make mistakes. They will um, possibly misbehave. Um, they'll want to leave early. One of the reasons there's social unrest in the world is most people are bored. They are angry, that's true. They are poor, that's true. But they're mainly bored, and that's the frustration. If they were interested, an interested person doesn't actually need very much money. They need a basic amount. They need to be able to eat and so forth. But if you're interested, most of the people I know who are the most interesting are tend to be quite poor. They tend to be painters, poets. They're people who are really, really absorbed in what they do. On the whole, rich people aren't that interesting, in my experience. Very rich people. They're more interested in themselves and they're more interested in their money and they're worried about losing the money they have. And they're not that absorbed in, in what they do. So I think the other thing is, in terms of the developing world, it's another thing that business ought to attend to is that there's a very interesting thing in normal life that altruism's good for you. The nicer you are to people for no reason, the nicer they are back. Nice people have nice lives because wherever they go, people are smiling and being nice to them back. It's the most extraordinary thing. Angry people have a shit life. If you're always shouting at the taxi driver or cutting up people on the motorway or, you know, you think people are being rude to you all the time, you, they, you get it back. And it's the same in corporate life. Actually, the more generous and thoughtful and creative you are, the more you get back from people. And um, so, for example, Afghanistan, if Afghanistan was a peaceful place, the natural resources in Afghanistan are unbelievable. What's in those mountains that currently are full of jihadis and Taliban and stuff is the most extraordinary natural resources all they have to do is build a few roads, and it would be the richest country in the world. In about, it would be like, 
Qatar or Bahrain or somewhere. It, it's so rich. All they have to do is have peace. And the thing is, if only somebody in corporate America could see, rather than trying to shoot them, why don't we build, you know, pour money in like the Marshall Plan after the Second World War into, into Germany. And Africa's another place. You know, the I forget how much bigger the economy of France is larger than the whole of Africa by quite a long way. This is another amazing resource, fantastic natural resource, amazing peoples, huge uh, linguistic and ethnic diversity. If QI could get into Africa and start educating people actually at village level in a simple way, because UNESCO, I'm told, have um, hundreds of schools. They've built schools which they can afford to, and they don't know what to teach in them. We know what to do. So that would be really... Uh, really interesting. So that's, and QI, that's always been since we first had, I wrote the original business plan to raise some money to start. And the educational thing has always been at the heart of it. The idea is that if you educated people properly, you would create a school, a nation, a continent of geniuses in a single generation. And because QI is as much about philosophy as it is about physics not only would they be highly educated and highly creative they'd also be a lot nicer because there would be again it's one of those well-kept secrets by giving away ideas by sharing them you get much better back you know two people sharing an idea are five times as effective as one person keeping it to themselves so it's uh, and that is something we learn every day that good behavior we do it because we. <laughs> I like to have a happy life. I like to come in and see smiling people who I get on with. But it's, as a piece of economics, extremely effective. You, you be nice to people, you have good working conditions, you pay people fairly generously even, you give them a share of the company, they'll work much harder for you. And we, our productivity in this company is quite astonishing every year. It's amazing what we did. One year we made, the 12 of us made Oh, gosh, 90 programs, and I think we did three books that year. That's a lot. In, impressive, really. But in general, I think that uh, what, you, what you're describing as a, almost like a formula is, is that whatever you do, do it so that you power fill people. It's not about being powerful. It's really about being power-filled, power right? And that's something that I, I think in general, a lot of companies, especially new, pretty young companies now, are very much uh, living up to, to these standards that you're describing. You know, they're sharing things, they're collaborating, they're cooperating in a different way, and they're happy if you copy-paste their business formula, if you can run with it and help them spread uh, that way of working or that solution that they found or whatever. And without, you know, having it sound like it's a naive approach, it's rather you're coming from another place where you see the bigger picture that we all, you know, drops of the same water or ocean. And so that whatever you do and I do, that is positive will kind of be paid back maybe in another currency than money but it will be paid back to you in, in a good way and the ride is so much more fun yes <laughs> <laughs> which is the the best currency of all right but if you would um, give one piece of advice to leaders i mean who however you choose to define those what would that be well there's an expression higher up 
in other words, hire the best person, best people you can possibly find. You should always, if you possibly can, hire people better than you because they'll they'll make you look good because they will, your company will do that much better. And the, the tendency on the whole, the worst kind of leadership is deliberately hiring people who are not as good as you and having deputies who are an idiot. So when you're on holiday, they look, they make a real mess of it and you come back and you look like a hero. That's a very short-term policy. That's definitely my first thing is hire the best people and let them get on with it. If they get stuck, help them. If they screw up, bollock them. But generally, leave them be. It's exactly the way to bring up children. Be nice, be there, and let them let them get on with it. Find the best people and then listen to them. You're such a dick if you think by being the chairman or the CEO you're somehow better than somebody. And a lot of these guys, I think, you can have imposter syndrome. They know perfectly well that they've managed to get there by politics and chicanery and not necessarily because of the best person in the company. The CEOs I know who really are really good, they're just so nice and they're so, uh, they're engaged. They care about you. They really, really know how to talk to another human being. A company which is run on thoughtful, kindly, brave, interesting lines is going to be much more effective in every way. Not just a nicer life for people, but it's economically going to punch way above its weight. Companies that are nasty and lazy and, you know, cowardly and uh, full of office politics, they don't operate very well. And it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that, you know, the nastier you are, the worse it'll get. I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand why why there isn't a you know working philosophy of life where, which is more effective i don't understand how how we've got in fact i don't understand why there's never there's never been that really in in human society except in very small pockets i have a f some friends of mine who work in huge corporations and it's 2018 and one would say you know that uh, there is a limit to how much internal politics can eat up you know good decision making and energy in the in the company and so on but still, to this very day, there is so much going on that is not benefiting the clients of that company or anyone, right? And I'm asking myself, how can that happen? And every time I ask that question and they try to answer it profoundly, it boils down to leadership. Because if the leader is afraid of conflicts and afraid of saying where the limits are and what values and stuff we really stand for, and this should be sacred ground, you don't do that here then things will be much clearer. It doesn't mean to be that you need to be dictator or anything, but you need to stand for something. And through that leadership, if you really stand for something, then the situation is much more clear. You don't give space to people who are into internal politics and, and, and kind of playing games, creating uh, lots of you know entropy in the system. I think the reason that this tiny company uh, works is because it really stands for something that everybody believes in. We believe in what we're doing. We believe that entertaining people with interesting information in an amusing way is of itself a good thing to do and that it does no harm. And that people also buy into the general, uh, the sort of microculture of how one behaves to each other because you can't get this anywhere else. Occasionally people go off and they get a job somewhere else and they go, oh my God. I had no idea. This is not, you know, <laughs> this is not like what most television companies or most publishing companies are like. 
And of course, when they come here as their first job, they think, well, this is my first job. If this is my first job, the next one's going to be much better than this. And they go away and they find out it isn't like that. But it stems from this thing. You know, I think I'm not a conventionally religious person, but I think if there were one commandment that I would have in a religion, it would be do what you know to be right and don't care what anyone else thinks. That would be my primary thing and I think but the thing because I believe that everybody knows internally what is right it's people think well I know I shouldn't do this but I can't you know whatever it is whether you're cheating on your partner or stealing you know it's everybody knows it's wrong but they can't help themselves so they just think I won't get caught so it doesn't matter and the same in corporate life is that you know companies corporations do know people operating the things they do know this isn't right this isn't right environmentally or it's not legal they know it's not right but they just can't help themselves as you think of the uh, Luke Johnson with um, Patisserie Valerie that's just had this terrible crisis because their finance director basically had to or so they're saying he's been arrested anyway that he basically was creamed off 20 million pounds out of the company and nobody noticed the chairman didn't notice well I want to know whose fault that is, you know, is it? And you have a sense, I think there's quite a lot of that sort of corporate life, which is lots of corporations. I knew a guy who used to run the Sony Corporation, big, big company. He said, they've forgotten what they stand for. They used to be so certain that every Japanese in the Sony Corporation would sing the company song in the morning, go, this is the greatest company in the world, and I, I would give my life for it. And you could see when, when a company loses that and is just doing it to create shareholder value or so that people can keep their jobs or just to survive. You see it with the BBC. Is the BBC is in survival mode. It just wants to survive. And it's a shame when people don't say, no, this is, we really stand for something. And people who don't stand for something don't really understand what you're talking about when you say that. Well, you're just a panel game. What do you What do you stand for? You, well, you, well, you're no different. To, no, no, you don't understand. That's not what. Well, you understand brands first. No, that thing is. And I all the years I worked in advertising, I used to really get brands. I I remember saying once, I did a big series of jobs for Nintendo, and I thought about Nintendo, and there were several things that I owned that were Nintendo things, and I kind of liked them, and I went and thought about what it must be like to be running Nintendo. And I had the marketing director of the company opposite me, and I said, the reason these commercials are going to work for you is because, as I think it, this is what I see your brand is. And he looked at me, he's like open mouth. He said, have you been reading our secret memos? How do you know this? And I said, I don't know, it just speaks your brand, the way I think of your brand is like this. It's like a Zen master in a garden and he's sitting thinking about how to do things better. It was great, you know. But, you know, brands with my son's band, for example, he thinks, because he's not done advertising, he thinks, well, we must get somebody who's a brand expert. I said, no, no, no. That isn't where a brand comes from. The brand comes from the heart. It comes from you. Who are you? When you know who you are and what you stand for and what you want to be, then we can decide what kind of overcoat you wear or what kind of shoes. You can't magic that from nothing. It'll be fake, and it, nobody, it won't work. So just like comedy is a way of telling the truth, 
it's the way I do. Brands are another way. A good brand tells the truth in a way which is effective, popular, economically viable, and adds value in both senses, adds monetary value and value to people's lives. A brand that doesn't do that is just a money-making machine and will make everybody unhappy. The people who consume the product and the people who work for the company, they will ultimately be unhappy in a vacuous, pointless life. And I suggest they find out who they are and do something about it. <laughs> so true. That's what I'm fighting for. But if you would uh, give some advice to yourself, let's say 15 years ago or so, what would it be? Well, 15 years ago, slightly, maybe slightly more. I think I would not have borrowed money. I think if I, I'll do anything now to avoid borrowing money, I think the money often is too expensive. I wish I'd started this company with my own resources and started it very small and grown it and owned it completely. I, I think one of the difficulties in corporate life is that very small companies don't really have a means of talking to very large ones. So the company that used to back us, if it was me as the CEO of this company and the CEO of the big one, we got on. We were like soulmates, actually. As long as we were alone in the office talking about strategy and ideas. But the minute it got passed down to other layers and other levels, it's just a nightmare. And then, you know, the money that we were given to start the company wasn't enough, but that was fine. But it basically, we spent our entire time reporting on how we were spending it rather than actually making things with it. And that the rules that the corporation had, not the CEO, you know, on property and on financial management and on staffing and on what, you know, what you had to do, what you weren't allowed to do, it just became completely impossible to operate. And then there was, there was no mechanism to deal with one another. So that, that took a lot of trouble. And I think that's certainly, and that's something with the band, for example, is I'm doing it with our own resources. We're doing it ourselves because the minute you ask somebody else for help, they've got you over a barrel. I'm afraid I'm not a big fan of private equity operations on the whole. I mean, money's a tool. It's not a thing you should have for your own sake. And you've got this peculiar thing. People who are driven to become immensely rich, all it does is make them worried about losing their money. And there's a point at which, which all the studies show, you don't get any happier having more money. The, it's microscopically tiny extra bits of happiness. I've got a friend, oh, he's a friend of a friend, really, who designed super yachts for people who can afford, you know, to spend a hundred million on a boat or whatever. And his deal is, you come to me, this is, you tell me what you want, how many swimming pools, you want a waterfall inside the living room, do you want a helicopter, all that, give me the spec, I'll go away and design, you have no say in what it looks like, just tell me what you want and I'll produce the, the best yacht in the world. So he takes a brief, he goes away for two years, three years, whatever, they build the yacht and they moor it in some fabulous island and they fly the client out to this island and they put them in a motorboat just as the sun is setting and so the yacht is round there and they come round the bay and the oligarch, the billionaire, sees this yacht and he goes on board and it's the perfect yacht and he sees the swimming pools that he dreamed of and he sees the, the swimming pool's got alligators in it or whatever. And 
for 20 minutes, he's completely happy. And that's what he pays 100 billion for, just to have that feeling, just for that moment. The next day, he's run out of happiness. My final question, John, to you is quite big and somebody could say philosophical, but uh, still, I think, very important. What do you think the world needs most uh, at this time? We're in a really difficult place in the world at the moment. I think particularly issues that people who I take very seriously think are a matter of racial survival, not merely a matter of inconvenience, so things like climate change. I'm, I'm not an expert on the subject, but you only have to look at the melting ice caps and, and the weather that we're getting. I think normal, ordinary people think, well, I don't know how, why this is happening. I don't know if the climate change is man-made or not, but there's something very worrying going on. I've done some work with a bunch called the Oxford Martin Institute who are futurologists and they are very, very pessimistic about the survival of the human race beyond the next century. There are so many things. There are global pandemics, there is climate change, there are migration issues, there are nuclear war, terrorism. The, the global issues are massive. It's very, very concerning. All I can say is I say that the only thing you can really change is yourself ultimately that trying to change the world is impossible because where do you start do you start with bill hartsier in african rivers do you start with the problem of child poverty do you start with uh, geopolitics and i don't know as somebody who feels guilty about giving my wife has to open all my charity envelopes because otherwise we would i would give everything away And my view is that the only person, you cannot change another person. I learned that from being married for nearly 30 years. You can only change yourself. So start with you. Examine yourself. Be better. Be nicer. Be kinder. Be braver. You know, do it better. Work harder. Do all those things better. Be nicer to your children. Listen more. And if you're lucky, you have a bit of a butterfly effect, you know, that every person that you're nice to will be nicer to two other people and so forth and you'll you'll you will achieve change in a small way we're we're too busy blaming outside forces including climate change it's, it's not my fault it's it's brexit has made my business not work it's you know it's because of donald trump it's because of the war in yemen it's always somebody else's fault it's actually a very good way to look at the universe is it's completely solipsistic. There's only you in it. You are sitting in a movie theater. Everyone else is an actor and you actually are controlling the plot. So you better start writing it a bit better than it's been going so far. That's my advice. Mm. Very good advice. Thank you so much, John. Thanks uh, for sharing everything. And um, for people to find out more about uh, QI and, uh, and so on, where do they go? Well, uh, qi.com, a uh, very simple address. Uh, you'll see a general overview of the kind of things we do. We're, we're a, a multi-platform research company. We do books, we do radio, we do podcasting, we do live theater, we do facts. We've got a, a brilliant podcast, I've say, with four of our young researchers called No Such Thing as a Fish, which is currently the most listened to podcast in the whole country in, in Britain at the moment or our Twitter feed, at Wikipedia, like Wikipedia, but with a Q instead of a W. So plenty of stuff you can, but find us on qi.com and that, that should route you to the sort of stuff we do. 
and YouTube, of course. Yes, YouTube, definitely. It's, we're, we're all over YouTube. In fact, our QI channel has just passed 100 million views. Wow. Congratulations. You have really a great team. Yeah. And also you will find uh, links and show notes on, on corporateunplugged.com slash podcast. Um, so remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Acast and share this episode with your network and friends for impact. Share it with people you know would benefit from hearing it. Thanks for listening and until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. Hey, live with purpose. I like that. <laughs>